back to the book of Isaiah. Um, we finished chapter 62 last time. Uh, 62 is a chapter that looks forward to the return of Jesus Christ, a time when we give, are given new names and a crown of glory, and we'll be called of no longer desolate, but married. Someone pointed out that, uh, I guess Beulah here was Hezekiah's wife. Or, or he no, it wasn't Beulah, it was Hephzibah. It was Hezekiah's wife. I thought that was quite interesting because he is involved in Isaiah and certainly this story about Hezekiah that we read about in the book of, he of, uh, of Isaiah, it's not the book of Hezekiah, the book of Isaiah uh, is an interesting story that has bearing on the end time church. So we'll be called, my delight is in her, which is what Hezekiah's wife was called. So that's a very interesting parallel there, that he would use her as an example as opposed to other women in the Bible. And then it talks about a young man marrying a virgin, uh, speaking of Christ marrying his bride, and I made quite a point of giving God no rest until he has brought this to pass. God wants to hear from us about it. And I think that's worth re-emphasizing here as we go on. And then in verse 10 of 62, I'm doing a little review here. He talks about preparing the way of the people to cast the rocks out of the road, to, to build up a highway, an opportunity, a chance, a way for people to come and say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. So he's speaking of Christ returning and of our salvation coming and do everything we can to make it possible for people to have opportunity to partake of that. Because it says his reward is with him and his work before him. Quoting Revelation 11, uh, 18. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the eternal, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The heavenly Jerusalem will come down at the beginning of the millennium, and we will be called a holy city that is not forsaken. And we have a little bit of a change then when we get to chapter 63. He flashes back to the current situation we have, what we are facing today. He said, Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Basra being an Edomite city. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Speaking of Christ, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Christ is the one who can save. So here's Christ coming from Edom, from Basra. Wherefore are you red in your apparel, in your garments, like him that treads in the wine fat? This ties in with the book of Revelation. When Christ is going to come back with garments dyed blood, sprinkled with blood when he comes back after the seven last plagues to take over rulership of the earth. I think it's interesting that he says he comes from Edom and Basra. Who despised his birthright? Esau or Edom. Who was willing to sell it for a pot of red stew or a bowl of red stew? 
who has been after Jacob's blood ever since. Esau and Edom have to be symbolic of bitterness, of hatred, of vengeance. And who does vengeance belong to? Belongs to God. Belongs to Christ. So you can tie this in with the book of Obadiah and other scriptures about Edom. There are some in Isaiah and in other places which show that Edom is going to be destroyed. Edom and Moab and Ammon and various others. So I think that it's a very pointed prophecy here that he will destroy those who are bitter against God and bitter against Israel and, in a larger sense, bitter, or maybe not a larger but a more specific sense, bitter against the spiritual Jew, the spiritual Israelite. God will not leave that unpunished. The martyrdom of saints, which will come shortly, and the whole world fighting against those who would and do obey God. I think another parallel to understand in here is that though Esau despised his birthright, Christ prized his. He would not give that birthright up for anything. He was willing to suffer, to die, that he not lose his birthright and that he'd be able to pass that along to us as our inheritance. Quite a contrast is made between Esau, who sold it very cheaply, and Jesus Christ, who would not sell it for any price, but retained it. And we receive the results of that. Now, anyone who is against Christ, antichrist, who has not respected the Father and the Son, and the birthright that has been offered us is going to be punished severely. Most of the earth is in that position. Most of the church is in that position. And most of the earth and 90% of the church are going to die in tribulation. Or they will come through it having suffered greatly. He goes on to say, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. Basically everyone despised him and forsook him, both when he was dying on the stake and being persecuted and punished beforehand, and now, both times. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will, I will stain all my raiment. So when he comes from the slaughter of the kings, when he comes from the slaughter of Edom, when he comes from the slaughter of all those who were against him, he will be wearing clothes stained with blood. Another reason he used Edom as the point of this prophecy, because Esau means red, and the blood of Jacob will be all over Esau's garments when this comes to pass, because Obadiah shows that in the end, Edom will have, or Esau will have, dominance over Israel at long last. They are part of the conspiracy to destroy America today in Britain and all of Israel. They have infiltrated our government. They have infiltrated uh, 
the banks, the monetary system, and that will be destroyed. Now, in conjunction with this, let's keep our finger there. I want to turn to Zephaniah for a moment. We've under, long understood that Zephaniah is referring to the end time, and we are in that end time. But he opens this with a prophecy that he is going to utterly consume all things from off the land in verse 2 of chapter 1. Man and beast, and he will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place at the end of verse 4. And those that worship the host of heaven, verse 5. It's going to be a, a very broad, widespread destruction that he brings. Verse 6, and them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired of him or for him. So there's a category of people who haven't sought God, and there are people who have turned away from God. They will all be punished. Many in the church are turning away from God right now. Verse 7, Hold your peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. So the context here is speaking of the day of the Lord, that it is on its way, that it's coming, that is soon to be here. In other words, he's talking about, in introducing the book of Zephaniah, when God begins to set his hand to do something about the situation on earth as we see it today. A world that is turned completely away from God, and a church which is in the process of turning away from God. He is going to do something about it. Now, this is the setting, the main context of this chapter and of this book, for that matter. Now, he says, The day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has bid his guests. There are scriptures, I'm not going to turn to them now for the sake of time, we've looked at them before, where he says he has prepared a sacrifice, he's invited the fowls of the air, he's invited the beasts of the field to eat, because he is going to perform a great slaughter upon the earth. So it's all those events leading up to the day of the Lord are being introduced here. Verse 8, And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Is there any wonder, he tells us in Isaiah 52 and other places, to put on our wedding garments, to put on the white garments of righteousness, to be prepared so that when he sees us clothed in righteousness, he will not destroy us. In other words, that he will pass over us and protect us. The parallels going back to Egypt and the delivery of Israel are strong. Now, it has been suggested, it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that this is speaking of the Passover, that it will happen at that time. Now, that, I don't feel, is the primary fulfillment of this verse, because the context is clearly preparing a sacrifice to destroy mankind and punish them for the evils and the punishment that is has a that is coming. Now, does that mean that it would not necessarily happen at Passover time? No. That could be a secondary 
meaning or fulfillment of this verse. It might be very well, because God does things that way. He is able to put things together in such a way that something can have two or three or four meanings, two or three or four applications. So the primary thing here is God preparing to take a hand in the affairs of the world. A secondary application could be that he's going to do it as a result of Christ's sacrifice and that it could happen. So the sacrifice it is going to be this time is not Christ and not ultimately his people. The sacrifice is going to be all those people who would not obey God. And that's what we're talking about in Isaiah 63. He's going to come from Edom as a type of bitterness and turning away from God, clothed in garments dipped in or sprinkled with blood. But I would not be surprised if he instituted some of this at the Passover time, because that is the time when Christ was sacrificed and the world turned its back on him. Even his own people, his own disciples turned their back from him. And we are at a time in world history where the whole world, except for those called out ones, have turned from him, and a time in history when most whom he did call out are turning away from him. Or if not turning away completely, certainly only giving him lip service and not paying much attention to it. I can see where this parallel can be drawn. And we, ourselves, sitting right here today, have walked all over his sacrifice in the past, not keeping the Passover properly and understanding when it all should transpire. We've had the Passover right at the beginning of the 14th, I fully believe, but we have not kept that day holy as a memorial and as a feast, as the Bible tells us clearly to do. We had better come to Passover, not in a wrong attitude, but dressed in proper apparel. Uh, not to take it unworthily, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, one of the first things that is going to happen as God begins to take a hand is mentioned in the rest of this chapter, how a financial crash will come. So it is speaking of time when the day of the Lord is introduced, but it also leads into one of the first events that will occur once God begins to set his hand to do something, and that is the financial crash that is coming to Israel. If you go down to, uh, let's see, a great crashing from the hills in verse 10, verse 11, howl inhabitants of Maktesh, which was a financial district in ancient Jerusalem. And it talks about how those who handle money will be cut off in the gold or silver in verse 18, won't be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. So the end time events apparently are going to be characterized beginning with a financial crash. Uh, will that come at Passover time? I think that is a possibility. Because overall, this is talking about the events leading to the day of the Lord, but that could be a secondary application here since that is mentioned. 
And certainly the financial crash is going to come before the full day of the Lord. We know the day of the Lord as a defined period of time is the year after the Great Tribulation. That's what it says in Matthew 24. Uh, but the day that he begins to take a hand in it could also be termed in an overall sense the day that the Lord begins to take a hand. Not that specific time that is the specific day of the Lord. And this certainly is in that context. He tells us to gather ourselves in chapter 2, verse 1, together. Yes, gather together, O nation that has not been desirable, or shameless, or unworthy. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. What decree is it talking about? Well, it obviously has to be the decree that we just read about. A decree of destruction and a decree of financial destruction and crash. I think it is interesting that we, when the stock market falls, as it did in 29, we call it a crash. We don't call it a fall, we call it a crash. And that's the exact word that is translated here of the financial system. And if you've noticed the news lately, uh, the dollar is weakening day by day, week by week. People are beginning to fear that uh, the debt that America has, upwards of $7 trillion now and maybe even more, depending on how you do the, the, the counting, they're beginning to fear to have money in America. They're beginning to lose confidence in us. And they're beginning to pull their money out and put it in euros and various other places. The euro kind of sunk down to about $1.28 here over the last three or four weeks, but now it's back up nearly to $1.35, and it keeps climbing. And the oil keeps going up, and we have a lot of pressures on us. Tremendous import-export deficit, which is putting us further and further debt, in debt all the time. And one of these days, it has got to come crashing down. God tells us to get ourselves together, to gather ourselves up before this happens, and to seek the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. He's going to hide some. But he leaves it an open-ended prophecy here just as he does in Matthew 24, where he says, pray that you be accounted worthy. It isn't automatic. Pray that it happen, that you be hid. I want to go back and review for a moment Revelation 18, because it persists throughout the church pretty much that we don't need to get away from the Babylonian system, we just need to come out of her spiritually, not think the way she does and act the way she does, but act according to God's will. Revelation 18, verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, I suppose the first part, if you're imaginative enough, you could say, I can dwell within her, I can be right in the middle of her, but I can keep my mind 
away from how she is so that I don't commit the same sins that those around me are committing. So you could say this is just a spiritual removal of your mind from the ways of this world. That's the way the church generally has looked at it. But what about the last part of that? That you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. How do you spiritually sidestep her plagues if you're still in the middle of her? That would be very difficult to do. He talks about verse 8, Her plagues shall come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. You want to be in the middle of that? Or do you want to be removed from it? Can you just maintain your good spiritual attitude and be in the middle of Chicago or New York when this happens and be safe from the burning, be safe from the death and destruction? I think not. Garner Ted Armstrong at one point said, God is just going to make a little plastic bubble over his people in the middle of L.A. or New York and he'll take care of us wherever we are. Show me some scripture on that, would you? Not there. He tells his people consistently and constantly throughout scripture, get away that you be not partakers of that. I made a comment, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, that uh, God may not do a great deal to help us get out of her. He leaves some of that to us. I'd like to go to Zechariah 2 and back that up a little bit. Chapter 2 of Zechariah, he talks about a measuring line in a hand here to measure Jerusalem, that is the church, to see what's left, to see how big and how wide it is. And verse 4 said, said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns, without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. So a series of villages, this is speaking right at the introduction of the two witnesses, Zechariah 3 and 4, the end-time leadership of the Church of God. So that is the time element we're speaking here. We're speaking at the end of 70 years, as is stated in verse 12 of chapter 1. We have been existent now in the end-time church I think, just over 70 years, any way you want to calculate it. So this is well nigh upon us. This is a time that villages without walls should be started, should be being built somewhere, somehow. And it is physical. Cattle are physical. It's not just a spiritualized thing. For I, says the Eternal, will be to her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. So wherever he inspires villages to be built without walls that will have men and cattle in them, he will be there to protect, to be sure that they are taken care of. It's not talking about the place of safety, I don't believe, here at all, but villages that he will protect. Now notice verse 6. Ho, ho, or attention, come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the eternal. Get away from her. 
Isn't that what it says in Revelation 18? Depart from her. Get away. That you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the Eternal. We are speaking of the time here, or he is, when he has scattered the church. He is about to scatter the physical nation with the famine, the pestilence, and the sword and make them captives, slaves around the earth. But the church has already suffered this and is still in the process of suffering it, still being divided, still being spread, but now pretty well blown apart as we sit here today. Now notice this next verse. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. He doesn't say here, I will draw you out. It says, deliver yourself. Get yourself away. Now, when it comes to go to a place of safety, it's different. There, he says, when you see that you're surrounded by armies, you go and go then. Don't take anything with you if you have to pick it up. If you're carrying it, I guess you can take it. But don't go down back into your house or anything else. The dog, the parakeets, the cats, the goats, the chickens, the cows, the horses, the mules, everything stays, you go. You call to your wife or your husband and your children and say, we're surrounded, let's go. And if somebody says, just a minute, I have to do my hair, they get left behind. It is going to be that urgent. And God will provide protection and safety and swallow up the army that comes after those who are fleeing for their lives at that time. So God will see that that protection is given. He tells us to pray that it not be on the Sabbath or in inclement or bad weather for obvious reasons. Because when it comes, it'll come. And you only have a momentary chance to get away. But this is talking about a time where it says, deliver yourself that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. This isn't the delivery of a great eagle. This is something where we deliver ourselves. And it's talking about the time of villages without walls. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after the glory has he sent me to the nations, which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. So here again, just before the destruction occurs, God tells his people, get out of her. Get away from her. Don't be there when this happens. Zephaniah tells us clearly, get out before the destruction comes. Some people say, well, when things get bad, then I'll do something about it. I guess you can play your cards any way you want to. But be careful. You might get caught holding a bad hand. It is coming. Based on what I see happening in the world, I can't imagine it being too far away. But make no mistake... When Jesus Christ sets his hand to do something, it's going to get ugly fast. Now, I think that probably the financial crash 
and the beginning of the destruction of this country is going to happen in one day, suddenly. But that may not be the same time in which the country is invaded. There may be a period of time from the time our financial system goes down and we begin to truly suffer famine and pestilence and ultimately the sword. There may be a period of time in there in which God gathers his people, in which there's persecution on the church before then finally going to a place of safety. So all I can say is you better put yourself in the best position you possibly can do so before this decree of destruction actually comes upon us. You see, it isn't just us, brethren. It isn't just me. I talk to people here and there, and they agree that we are in serious trouble and that it is going to all come apart. I mean, people I talk to on airplanes or wherever I happen to have a conversation with people, some of this starts coming up, or I introduce it to see what their reaction is, and uh, if they react a certain way, I shut up. If they react positively, then we discuss it. And these Mormons really understand and know that time is limited. They expect it to come apart soon. The mainstream Mormons as well as the polygamist uh, offshoot Mormons, among other people that I meet in various parts of the world. So we're not the only ones expecting it. People see that we're in trouble. Now, a lot of us in America today just simply have our heads under our wings and don't see anything. Just don't interrupt my job, don't interrupt my home, don't interrupt my car payment, and don't interrupt my TV watching. And that's all they think. They don't use their minds at all to see what's going on around them. And you know what? A lot of the church is that way. But it's coming. All right, let's go back then to Isaiah 63. <clears throat> He's going to come from the wine press <coughs> with blood sprinkled on his garments. Verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. The year that his redeemed, his people, those who are faithful to him, are going to begin to receive his blessing and ultimately the reward that we read about in chapter 62 of eternal life in the kingdom of God. So there is a specific year in which he is going to set his hand for his people, and a specific day in which he is going to begin to bless them. He says he'll send the former and the latter rains in the first month. Another blessing, and that's in Joel. And another place he talks about the ninth and 24th, ninth month, 24th day in Haggai, when a specific blessing is also mentioned. And others. Verse 5, And I looked. Now the year is coming... The year of his redeemed is very near, okay? This is a setting here. Destruction and vengeance upon the nations and the peoples who will not obey, and the year of his redeemed, or their salvation out of it, is very near. And I looked, and there was none to help. The church, basically in a time of spiritual famine, and headed toward uh, Amos 8, of total famine, there's just no one around to help. People are helpless, hopeless. 
And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury, it upheld me. Christ said, I wish there were those around who would help. It looks like I'm going to have to pretty well do this myself. And I will tread down the people in my anger and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Men will stagger like drunks. They will be so confused, so frustrated, so in pain with what is about to come. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Eternal and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. Remember chapter 54 of Isaiah where he talks about lengthening the cords of your tent and so on, that God is going to begin to bless. He's going to begin to bring his people together. He's going to begin to call his remnant, his faithful remnant, from around the world, wherever he has scattered them. He's going to begin to bless his church under Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses. That's where the church is going to come back together. So he says, I'll mention the loving kindnesses that God has bestowed on us. Now he's going to be destroying the world, but those who are faithful will have been blessed in the meantime. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Now Israel is a type of the church at the end, the Israel of God. And the blessing will come first there. But here again, the prophecies are dual. Once physical Israel has been scattered and destroyed, just as the church is, is being, then he will begin to gather them in the millennium and bless them at that point. But it's happening first to us. And we will have begun to receive blessings about the time that the physical nations are going to get their physical destruction, and most of the church along with. We should be praying diligently that we will have the garments of righteousness so that we can escape all that is about to fall. Verse 8, For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie, so he was their Savior. There will be a small group who will not lie and will not deny Christ, but will say, He is my God, and they'll know Him. But most will deny, won't they? When they are put under pressure to take the mark of the beast, His mark upon them, whether it be physical or spiritual, whether it be an actual mark in your forehead and your hand so that you can't think for yourself and work, or whether you just accept the system and it's symbolic of your mind and your hand. It'll probably be physical, but all it has to be is symbolic. You go their way instead of God's way. God will know the difference whether the mark is physical or not. We don't have to have Christ's blood on the doorposts of our houses, or a lamb's blood, on the doorposts of our houses today when this decree of destruction comes. We have to have Christ's blood and he will know to pass over and protect us. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie, people who will not lie and will accept him truly as their savior, he will protect be their savior. That's what it means. Pass over, don't destroy, save, in other words. That's what a savior does, is saves. 
In all their affliction, he was afflicted. When we go through the affliction that we have to go through here at the end time to be accounted worthy, you know what it does to him? It just tears him up inside. Because he sees us going through the same affliction that he had to go through. He will see some of us punished, tortured, martyred, killed, even as he was. And it will cause him to have to emotionally relive everything he went through. It will tear him up inside. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. I want to come within that circle of his love and his pity. I want to have overcome and grown and changed enough that he will show love and pity toward me. And it's only going to be a remnant. To me, that should give us impetus, should give us strength, should give us determination to be sure we fall within his love and his pity. <coughs> In his pity and love, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Now, he's going to reflect back through all Israel and how he was willing to show pity and mercy. Now, he's writing it to us because this is an end-time prophecy, but he's going to remind how he showed pity on Israel when they were in slavery so that we might have a historical record to show and to give us strength and faith and confidence that he'll do the same for us. These things were written as examples for those upon whom the ends of the world has come, as Paul put it in Corinthians. But, verse 10, they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit, therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Fought against his own people, because they rebelled against him. Didn't he at times withdraw from Israel and allow their enemies to whip up on them? Yes, he did. When they would disobey, he'd say, all right, I'm backing off. You're on your own. And when they were on their own, what happened? Now, we have a church today backing off from God, and he's leaving it on its own. He's turning his face away. Can't stand to look at it. Same with ancient Israel, same with today. So he turned and became their enemy. He told, we read just recently, chapter 54, 55, where he said, I turned my face away, but just for a moment. Now I'll turn it back to you in love and mercy. So he's, he's saying that right here. Verse 11, but it gets positive again. Then, once he turned his face away, once he couldn't stand to look at, once he became the enemy of the church... Doesn't he say, I am the one who destroyed you. I spewed you out. That's what an enemy does. He's been an enemy to the church. Or acted like an enemy to the church. Verse 11. Then, after he became an enemy to the church and to Israel, see it's dual again. He spewed the church and he's about to spew physical Israel. He's going to regather the church, the remnant, faithful remnant, just before the destruction on Israel. And then, when Israel has been destroyed and scattered, he's going to turn and remember them. 
and set up the millennium for them, those that survive. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? He said, says to himself, I've become the enemy of my own people. Where am I who delivered them out of Egypt? Where am I who carried them like a flock? In other words, emotionally, he begins to tell himself, I don't want to be the enemy of my people. I want to love them. I want to gather them. I want to help them. He has to become our enemy for our own good. He has to chastise us for our own good, Hebrews 12. But if we respond properly, he won't be able to help himself because he's a God of pity and love. So he'll begin to turn. He'll begin to think of what he did in the past. Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name? He'll say, where am I now? Why am I not like I was then? He'll begin to say, I'm going to change my attitude toward this people. That led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. As a beast that goes down into the valley, the Spirit of the Eternal caused him to rest. So did you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of your holiness and of your glory. Isaiah says, and this should be our cry. Remember it said right back here, just a chapter or two back, 62 verse 7. Give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Repeating that thought here. Look down from heaven and behold, from the habitation of your holiness and of your glory, where is your zeal and your strength and the sounding of your insides and of your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Isn't this our prayer? God, look down. Look at this mess we're in. Where are you? What are you doing? Why don't you help us? Remember Moses? Remember the Red Sea? Remember how you delivered? Help us. Where are your mercies? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us. Abraham doesn't know anything about us, does he? He's dead and gone. We're at the end time. This is our prayer. This is our plea. Isaiah's putting it in words for us. He's telling us what we ought to be praying what our attitude should be right now. We should be saying, doubtless you're our father, even though Abraham doesn't know it. Israel acknowledges us not. All of Israel doesn't recognize God's people today, his called out ones for who they are and what they are, do they? They think we're idiots, crazies. And you and I are some of the craziest of the crazies, according to the, most of the rest of the church. Well, let that be as it is. Israel doesn't acknowledge us. Abraham doesn't know us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. Your name is from everlasting. We need to remind him who he is and that he is our Redeemer. And he's always been there. 
The people of your holiness have possessed it but a little while. We came into a knowledge of the truth here at the end time, and we've only had it for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. Hasn't the church been pretty well destroyed by our adversaries? And perhaps there's a tie-in to Daniel here as well, the tre treading down of the sanctuary there. I'm not going to get into that at the moment, but the church certainly has been trodden down, and they're going to tread it down even worse. They will try to wipe it out completely by surrounding it and that's the time for the final flight. So it's trodden down now. But our prayer is, as Isaiah puts it, we're yours. You never bore rule over them. You were never their God. You were our God. And look what you've done to us. They were not called by your name. We are, aren't we? We're called by the name of God. And yet we're being scattered like he was our enemy. God always scatters in order to save. It is a tool he uses to get people's attention. It's what he's always done, historically. We start having serious trouble. The reason is that he might get our attention. Now, if you look at the church today, it has been scattered, and yet most in the church don't recognize why, what God is trying to do. They may think he's trying to do it to somebody else, but not to them. Brethren, we simply have to take it personal. We are a part of the scattering, and if we're a part of the scattering, then God wanted our attention, my attention, your attention. Everyone who is a part of the scattering needs to recognize that it's for them personally. Otherwise, no one does anything about it. This is the plea of those who have been called by God's name. The thought continues into chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at your presence. And when the melting fire burns, the fire causes the waters to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. It's a plea and a cry for God to take hold, to do something about it. There are a lot of people out in the world today who see more and more destruction, and they're beginning to say, why does God allow this? Why does God allow tsunamis and terrible earthquakes and volcanic eruptions? Why does God allow wars? Or as it was in an article years and years ago in Worldwide Church of God, why did God let Johnny die? The answers are right here. Our prayer is that God will intervene. He's allowing lessons to be learned, and he is going to teach some very severe lessons when his vengeance is turned loose. If you think they wonder why they, he let little Johnny die now, wait till over 90% of the population of the earth is destroyed by his anger. 
<coughs> but our prayer is, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come so quickly that it would just burn the atmosphere around you, that the mountains might flow down at your presence. Verse 3, when you did terrible things which we look not for, you came down. <coughs> the mountains flowed down at your presence. So it's a, see, Bill drank out of the left one. I'll use the right one here. They're talking about mandatory AIDS testing in this country now. I'm, I'm not implying that you might have it. It's just people are getting to the point that they worry, you know. You never know about people anymore. <coughs> Verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, beside you, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. Paul quoted that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. A man just doesn't grasp what God is doing. That's what the book, Mystery of the Ages, and the little booklet that preceded it, Why Were You Born, was all about. <coughs> that man might begin to understand what God has in store for us. Though you meet him that rejoices and works righteousness, those that remember you in your ways. God is going to meet up with, to come face to face with, ultimately, <laughs> those who rejoice in him. Behold, you are angry, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we be shall be saved. <laughs> he tells us in, in Matthew 24, excuse me, my throat's getting a little raw. He tells us in Matthew 24, to endure to the end. But here he's talking about those who have sinned, and yet there are some in whom is continuance. They continue to obey. They continue to grow, continue to overcome. They don't give up. They move on. They move forward. And as a result, shall be saved. But the problem is, verse 6, <clears throat> even in this context, as God is about to take hold and even as we pray for his intervention, even as we pray for his mercy and his pity, we still need to recognize something, not become spiritually uplifted and thinking that we have need of nothing, but we all still need to be very aware of reality. Verse 6, Even though we're continuing and shall be saved, we are all as unclean, an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. It isn't our righteousness. Remember chapter 54, he says, Their righteousness as is of me in the last verse. It isn't our righteousness. It isn't anything good about us. It is God in us that produces good fruit and righteousness. And we need always to recognize that, lest we be lifted in spiritual pride and think that we're something. Because we are nothing. So even as we come to the point where we might endure through this and might be saved out of it and might be protected and then given our crown, we still need to recognize that by nature... We are sinful. 
But the best we can do is like filthy, dirty, bloody clods. That's the best we'll ever be on our own. <clears throat> and there is none that calls upon your name that stirs up himself to take hold of you. We have a general malaise at the end of Laodiceanism where no one wakes himself up enough to take hold of Christ. Most of the church is sitting down half asleep or asleep, not awake enough to grab hold of God. There is a positive action that has to occur. We don't just sort of sit here and say, oh, God, help us. No, we stir ourselves up and we grab hold. Something we have to do. That's what Jacob did when he wrestled with Christ that night. He grabbed hold and held on, would not turn loose. We have to stir ourselves up to take hold of him. And there's not much of that that will be going on in the period of time which he is talking about just before the day of the Lord, when these events begin to happen. Characterizes the church today. For you have hid your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. If you ever have any doubt about how this has happened to us, here's a good verse. There are many of them, but here's a good one right here. <clears throat> Just before this whole, whole thing comes down, here's the attitude we need. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. We all are the work of your hand. What we have to do is yield. It's a time to give up our human nature, give up our way, give up the way of the world around us, and to yield to his way, which is absolutely contrary to our nature. We want to cling to things that we like or enjoy, or we like to just do nothing spiritually. Have you ever noticed it is difficult, unless you're in real trouble, it is difficult to have good prayer and Bible study habits day in and day out? The more we recognize what God is doing to the church and how he's hidden his face from it and how he spewed it out of his mouth, and the more we realize how much we need to have on righteous garments, the more we see the world starting to come apart around us Maybe it will drive us to our knees and put our, to put our heads in the Bible. But it isn't our nature. It is our nature to drift until we get in trouble and then turn to God. That's why he's brought all this trouble on us. We have to yield. He is the potter. He wants to, sh he wants to shape us according to his will and his purposes. But we resist have you ever tried to work with materials in building that when they're cold, they're very stiff, and where, when it's hot, they're pliant, maybe vinyl that goes around the base of a wall, for instance. If it's cold and you're trying to mold that into a corner, very difficult to do. It's brittle. It can break. But if it's warm and it's pliant, you can 
push it right in. works easily. God likes to work with things that are pliable. And if he molds you and puts you into certain shape, you stay that way. Now, if you're too weak and insipid, he kind of tries to shape you, and he takes his hands off, and you go, poof, mud puddle again. Well, I guess you better gather it up, throw some more dirt on it, more clay in there. Got too much water. That's us. On the one hand. On the other hand, we can be so rigid that he has trouble forming us the way he wants to form us. We resist. We push back. We're not pliable. We, we got both maladies in the church today. Those who can't be shaped at all because they just collapse into a quivering mass of nothing. And we have those who pull back the shoulder or plant all four legs like a heifer, as he says in Hosea, and will not be led. There are a lot of those in the church who are not teachable, who will not be led, who resist, who have their own ideas. Instead of reading what God really says and becoming meek, humble, righteous, and willing to be taught. Too stiff or too weak, either one, is hard to work with if you're a potter. <clears throat> Verse 9, our plea again. Be not angry, very angry or very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. We've read in this book how he will wipe away our sins as a cloud in one day. There's, there's coming a day when he is going to forgive and forget our sins and consider us righteous again. And he's going to begin to bless those that he puts in that category or those who have grown and overcome and bent to his will and have been willing to be worked with and shaped those are the ones he'll bless. Be not angry, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, look, we say. Look, God, see. We beseech you. We're all your people. We're, we're yours. We're called by your name. We're your church. Please look. See us. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. That's the view God has of the church right now. That's the way we see ourselves right now. Because we are Zion and Jerusalem, spiritually speaking. We are the Israel of God. And we are in a mess. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire. Gone, back into the world. The last part of the campus in Pasadena is apparently being sold now, according to the last report I read. <clears throat> Where's it gone? Disappeared. Our pleasant things are laid waste. Remember all those big congregations we had? Everybody would come and we thought we were doing just fine, just great, just wonderful, and they kept dividing into bigger and bigger congregations and instead of having one 
Dallas or Houston or Chicago would have three or four or five congregations. Oh, it was beautiful. Everything was growing. Everything was just fine. We got our tickets ready to jump on the plane as soon as the phone call comes, and God will take us out of here and we'll all be full of peace and safety. Look at us now. Nobody knows which end is up. Our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very sore? We need to be crying out to him. Look at the mess we're in. Are you, are you going to continue this? Are you going to do something about it? It's, it's continuing that thought from chapter 62. Don't give him any rest till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Begin to call your people out, gather them together as for the book of Haggai. Resurrect them, change them, bring them back down as the holy city, and make them a praise in all the earth. That's our plea, that's our prayer. Isaiah is telling us right here how we need to be praying, what we need to be doing. Crying out to God to resolve this mess and to save us. Call his attention to what a mess we're in. Ask him to fix it. Well, I think I'm going to stop there because chapter 65, well, it continues this thought to some degree. He, he gives us in the next chapter what his problem is with us. See, we're crying out, we're pleading, and we'll stop there.